can. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You, shall, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Let's pray. Father, show us from your word now that which you would instruct and teach us. May it not return void. Use this, the preaching of your word, to build us up in the faith, to draw the lost to salvation, and to grow us and increase knowledge of Christ, that we may live lives pleasing to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated as we're moving through Genesis. Um, this is not another creation event. This is rather another account of the same creation event. In a sense, Genesis 1 is the macro story. It's the big picture. God created the heavens and the earth, and you get this big overview in Genesis 1. And then beginning in Genesis 2 here in verse 4, we start getting these micro-stories, the stories being retold with greater detail, zeroing back in as the author comes back around to retell pieces of the story to help us understand, adding additional details, helping us understand more clearly what he had done. Uh, One of the the neat things about Bible study today uh, versus when I started in ministry is that software has come a long way. And so when you're reading in the Bible study software, you have access to things that you wouldn't normally have access to or much easier access to. And one of the things that uh, happened this week as I was reading was there was a footnote that had the name Mark Futado in it. I was like, I know that guy. And it was from a journal article that he had written over 20 years ago for the Westminster Theological Journal. So I thought, well, I'm going to click it and read it. And I can tell you I understood about 10% of it. Um, <laughs> it's pretty heady, very interesting reading, probably spent more time reading it than I should have, but it was, it was fascinating. He describes what is happening here in this second chapter of Genesis with this circling back around to retell the story. He calls it an example of the Hebrew stylistic technique of synoptic resumption expansion. 
A Hebrew, he's a, he's a seminary professor, okay? A Hebrew author will at times tell the whole story in brief form, synopsis, then repeat the story, resumption, adding greater detail, expansion, such as the case in Genesis 2, 4 to 25. And so when you see Mark tonight, you can you know, share with him that you learned some things. If, if that was new to you, the expansion, resumption, details, all that good stuff, give you a quote of that to use with him later. We do the same thing, though, when we tell stories. We'll tell the big picture, and then we'll come in and add more details. Or when we watch the news, you know, the headlines given up front. You know, Midwest is slammed by snowstorm. Then it zeroes in. In Oklahoma City, streets are snarled. And then they, de- you know, so-and-so is now coming to us live from Oklahoma Moral Hospital where there's no power. And so the story zeroes in, bringing greater detail and clarity. This is the same way that we often tell our stories or as news. So that is what's happening. And the reason I explain this to you is not only to understand what's happening in this text and in the, in the, in the, in the uh, stories that we will uh, come to in the following weeks, but also to make sure that there is no misunderstanding because some have thought that this was actually another creation event and that's not what's happening at all. The text before us today is the setting of the stage. Genesis 1 is the beginning of that setting of the stage and now that, uh, that zeroing in, the spotlight gets a little tighter on the stage as we begin to look at the drama of redemption. In these verses, we see how God established the Garden of Grace, an incredible environment, perfect in every way for everything that Adam and Eve needed. It was a land with incredible wealth. We see that when we read it, it had the perfect climate, uh, it had everything they needed, included these two special trees, which would come to serve as teaching tools, but also would foreshadow what was to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Additionally, we see God create man from the dust, a potter forming his clay from the dust of the earth. So while much of the vegetation only needed sunlight and water to grow, there was some vegetation that needed cultivation. It needed someone to take care of it, and so it needed a gardener to rule over it. And then God formed man as a potter to do this. And it's then in the same line of man formed of the dust and in the same fashion of his body that the Creator would then come as the Redeemer one day in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. So this then is that opening scene that we see in Genesis 2 verse 4. These are the generations. This is the phrase that that verse 4 begins with. And this statement is one that we will see repeated throughout the book of Genesis. It is a statement uh, that's used to introduce the next theme or the next section of the book. And so we see it used here as an introduction in the beginning. We'll see it used again at the flood, at the Tower of Babel, with Abraham, with Jacob and Esau, with Joseph. We'll see this phrase, uh, these are the generations of, used. The idea behind these words are to to give birth or to bear. And so there's this idea of the generations producing. And so as we read it, uh, we see this thread that's beginning. And the thread in in Genesis isn't clear. You know, we don't really know what the thread is going to be. We read all the way through Genesis and we see the generations that are happening. But it becomes very clear then when we get to the Gospels, right? Because we read the genealogies of Jesus and we see that scarlet thread, as we call it, 
go all the way back to Adam, that God is indeed setting forth this line through which the promised seed of the woman would come and bring deliverance. The text in the verse actually says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In other words, it's the big picture, everything. This is the birth story of everything, the heavens and the earth. But if you look at the end of verse 4, the author flips it and says the earth and the heavens. And he's signaling that he's now coming in from that macro story down to the micro story to tell the details, zeroing in on this region known as Eden. Another thing that's unique that we see appear here in verse 4 is the use of the name Yahweh. Up until this point, the only name used of God in Genesis has been Elohim, the powerful name of God. But here we see it joined, Elohim joined with Yahweh. And, and you'll notice in your English Bibles it comes through as Lord God. So up until this point, we've seen God, 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 that's Elohim. Now we see Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim. This is the personal name of God, Yahweh. The majestic name of God wedded with the intimate and close name of God. Elohim shows God's transcendence. Yahweh shows his eminence, his closeness. Elohim, the transcendent God, is captured in a verse like Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then Yahweh, the eminent God, is captured in Joshua 1.5 where he says to Moses, just as I was, or to Joshua rather, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And then we see in, in a number of passages how these two are wedded together as what happens here in Genesis 2. Like Jeremiah 23 where he says, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? The God who is high above is also the God who loves his people and comes near to them, and he works through them to accomplish all his holy will. There are times where we feel God's farness, and we need God's eminence. We need to know his closeness. And there are sometimes maybe where we get too comfortable and too trite with God's closeness, and we forget that he is, or he is transcendent, that he's holy, 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 that he's far above all things. So it's important for us to keep both in mind, and we see these now together wedded in the name Lord God or Yahweh Elohim. In the next section, verses 5 to 9, we see the ordering become a little bit more topical. So what we see in the the first chapter of Genesis being more chronological, now we see it become topical, retelling the story in a way that we might understand it or we might tell a story or retell a story. Um, In in, in verses 5 to 6, we see the earth before day 3 of creation. No bush of the field was yet in the land. No small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land. There was no man to work the ground. So the vegetation came into existence then how? Was it by seeds and germination? No, it was by the word of God. He spoke it into existence. And that's what happened on day three of creation. The problem was the lack of source of water. He had not created the means by which it would rain yet. And there was no one to cultivate the food plants in particular. And so God solves both problems here 
in this account of Genesis 2. First, by providing water through a mist or a stream. Some of your Bibles may use the word mist. Some may use stream. Uh, to provide this to nurture, nourish the ground or water the ground, and also by creating man to cultivate it. There are a variety of opinions on what this mist or stream actually was. There are those who say that it was indeed a mist, that it was almost like a heavy dew, that before the flood, uh, the earth was different, uh, the stratosphere was different, and the means by which the ground was nourished with water was this heavy dew that occurred daily, uh, creating almost a greenhouse effect on the planet. Some argue that the mist is actually rain, that this is actually, there had not been rain until now, and so God caused this mist. He actually created rain and caused it to rain here. Others suggest that it was a stream, a subterranean river that would come up. And there is some argument for this when we come later to see that there is indeed a river in the middle of the garden, and it does water all of the plants. And so the Nile functions this way, where it rises and lowers to irrigate the land. But the point isn't to know the specificity. We always want to know the details, and unfortunately, sometimes we get so bogged down on knowing the details that we miss the big picture. We do this in Revelation and in eschatology, too. God God isn't giving us all the details, because the details aren't what matter so much as what actually happened, and that is God provided the solution. He provided the solution as a caretaker. He provided the solution to water the ground. Whatever the water looked like, however it got into the ground or nourished the plants, God is the one who provided it. And then in verse 7 we read, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So man is created out of the dust of the ground. And we see here a play on words in Hebrew. The word for man is Adam or Adam. And the word for dust or ground is Adama. So it's this similar sounding words that we see that come out. And that's to show there's a connection here. We come from the earth. To dust we've come, or from dust we've come, and to dust we'll return, right? That's where we'll go. That's what our bodies are. And yet, we are formed or created as a potter would form clay in the image of God. So there is both a humility and a glory that is that is uh, communicated here in the creation of mankind. We are in God's image, all given worth and value by our Creator. Everyone, every person He's ever made, even the people that we may like the least, made in the image of God and given value and worth by Him. And at the same time, we're but dust, frail, and apart from the life giving breath that he's breathed into our nostrils, and the moment that he cuts that breath off, back to dust we go. The word for formed here is actually where we get the idea of a potter. It's the same word that's used that a potter would take clay and form a clay. It's an intentional act. And Job captures this in terms of communicating our frailty. When he's asking all of these questions about God and how God works and why God does that all that he does, he says, Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Job knew what he was. And yet Paul takes this a step further in 2 Corinthians 4, where he shows that that frailty of being made of dust is actually for the purpose of putting on display the glory of the Creator. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We would all do well to be humbled by this reminder that we are but mere clay. 
And it's the potter who is not only the source of our life, but the sustainer of our life as well. The breath that God breathed into his nostrils is here called the breath of life. Of course, mammals breathe air, but humans are different. They have been given the breath of life. It's an intimate act, again, showing the Creator is both Elohim and Yahweh. And it's also a shadow of the new life to come, of regeneration. The Spirit is often equated to wind or breath. We see the same wording used when the Spirit is described. And the Spirit, of course, is the actor in regeneration. We see this foreshadowed in the, in the uh, 37th chapter of Ezekiel, the Valley of Dry Bones. Remember, all the skeletons are laying there, and what is Ezekiel told? Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So there, this picture of what happens to us at regeneration. We go not from sick people to well people. We go from dead people to living people. We go from death to life. And then in verse 8, we see that God planted a garden within the region of Eden, which was an extremely wealthy region in terms of resources, and he placed man there. In this garden, though, requires cultivation. And it's typically the plants that are used for food, which requires someone to tend them. If you think about it, when you go on nature hikes, when you go out in the wilderness, why don't you ever see corn growing wild or tomatoes growing wild? I'm not saying it can't happen. We just don't typically see cucumbers when we go on a nature hike. If people talk about living off the land, they typically, living in the wild or so forth, they think of foraging nuts and berries and things that are edible, but that we typically don't eat. Because the food that God has given us for, think of grain or think of these other plants that I've mentioned, require cultivation. And so God solves this. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Both problems are now solved. Both the water to nourish the ground or nourish the plants and man to tend to their needs. Any of you who've ever had a garden know the importance of caring for it. What happens when you don't cultivate your garden? It it doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't give you the fruit or the product that you're going for. And I know some of you are thinking, Seth, this is pre-fall. The thorns and the thistles haven't come up yet, and that's the biggest problem in gardening. While it is a problem in gardening, and it's true that this is pre-fall, there is still a sense that even without thorns and thistles, certain plants require tending. Tomatoes don't grow well unless you stake them up. They lay on the ground and they rot. You know, there are things that need to be given attention to. And so this cultivation was also a part of the good work. Again, this is pre-fall. So work was a part of creation. So work is not a result of the curse. The work is by the sweat of our brow now, and we work against the thorns and the thistles and all of those things. But work itself is actually a good gift from God to us. Additionally, God planted two important trees in the garden, the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these two trees are going to play a central role in the near future. Note that the garden contained every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So the garden not only provided all that man needed to survive, 
but also gave a beauty for him to enjoy. Why is this important? The reason this is important is to understand that Adam had no need to go near the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had no need to. He had everything he needed. And yet, we know how the story ends, but we get ahead of ourselves. We'll get there. So then we come to verses 10 to 14, and this is kind of a parenthetical uh, phrase or a parenthetical uh, number of sentences that sit in the middle of the chapter to show the wealth of which Eden uh, contained. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. This is the provision for nourishing. And again, this verse kind of can serve as an argument that what that word in the initial part of the, of the chapter, whether it's mist or stream, it could be stream, this could serve as an argument for that. The point was the river was abundant because from it came these four other rivers, rivers that we might have trouble pronouncing. Um, but two of the names we don't recognize and two of the names we do, particularly the Tigris and the Euphrates. If you did any study in geography uh, of the Middle East, you know where the Tigris and Euphrates sit. And, of course, when conflicts have arisen over there, we've heard these names in the news. It's possible that um, those aren't the same rivers because, again, the global flood was going to happen and that was going to change the landscape of everything. The point of all of this, though, is to show this abundance It was abundant in every respect. There was abundance of gold, of precious jewels, of water, of soil, of plants, of everything. And it is this image of, I mean, when we hear of Eden, don't we long for that? I mean, we we long for a place where all of our needs are met, where there's both provision and there's beauty. And this is designed not only to make us look back in a sense of longing, but really to look forward in a sense of longing that this is what we look forward in the new heavens and the new earth. There, there is a river in the true Eden that we see in Revelation 22. Listen to how it's described. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations." And so we see this picture looking forward. That's what we're longing for, this river of life. And Jesus uses this same language when he talks to the woman about the rivers of life that would come from her. In John seven thirty eight. whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the testimony of the work of Christ in us, that out of us flow these rivers of living water for others to know about the hope that we have. And then this last section, verses 15 to 7, these last three verses of our text, the author zeroes in even further in the retelling of the part of creation story, and it centers now on the Word of God. In verse 15, we see God had placed a man in the garden to work and to keep it. There's a twofold meaning to this phrase. There's the obvious one, to work and to keep it, the idea of cultivating the plants, the idea of subduing everything or having under submission uh, all that God had given them in creation. The second meaning comes from the, the way that the grammar is used in Hebrew, that, and some of your translations may capture this, serving and obeying. These are the same two words that are used to describe the priestly duty that would come. And this is really what God has created man to do that we see throughout Scripture, to serve and obey Him. It's especially linked, though, here to the next verse and where He will give them this command in verse 16. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The trees here were given as good gifts. Now, any time something is given and there's a prohibition attached to it, we always think of that in the negative sense. But it was given as a good gift. In particular, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a gift to both instruct and remind Adam and Eve of God's character and his role as their God. The gift came, though, in not eating it. See, we typically think if a gift is given to us, it's ours to have and to consume. But here God gives them a gift, and the gift itself is in not consuming it. The gift, like some other commands of God, was that they not eat of it. It was to instruct them in obedience to the Word of God, to teach them that opposing the Word of God is to oppose the will of God. And isn't that something that we need to learn a few times in life? Isn't that something that, in essence, what we're teaching our children, but also that we're struggling with ourselves? To obey God's Word is to submit to God's will. By obeying God and not eating the fruit of this tree, man would live in freedom. A freedom that was in not doing what God had forbidden. So often people resist God. They push away at the idea of God because they believe that they're giving up freedom. They want freedom to do whatever they want. But as this passage shows us, the opposite is true. This is a misunderstanding. As long as Adam would obey God, he would enjoy freedom and abundance and life to the fullest because everything he needed was already there. Not just in terms of food, but in terms of beauty. He had an abundance. And what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would do was actually bring death. And yet we know how the story ends. We won't go there today, but we will eventually get there and we know that the fall from grace does happen in the garden. The potter who formed him and the gardener who planted him in this abundance had given him everything he needed. It was all grace. But in Adam's fall, we send all. And that's the bad news. There are none righteous, no, not one. Outside of the Garden of Eden, we are all on this helpless slide toward the righteous judgment of God because of our sin. But you see, the same potter and gardener of grace had a far greater story to tell than what we read about in the paradise of Eden. The potter would one day put on the clay of human flesh in the person of Christ and come to live as a man and lay his own life down for us, the very ones who had sinned against him. The potter and gardener of grace offers to us the living water that we see in this river, that we receive by faith so that we can know this grace the grace that we will know in fullness in the reality of the new heavens and the new earth, the true Eden. In John 4, verse 10, I misspoke earlier when I said he said to the woman, it's here that he speaks to the woman in John 4. Jesus is interacting with this woman from Samaria, and he think, or she thinks all that he needs is a drink from the well. But Jesus has something far greater to offer her, and he says this, "'Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again.'" But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is our hope. 
This eternal life, this, this hope that we have beyond this world is our hope as we walk through the struggles of the day. The God of all grace calls us to come. Though we are but dust, He breathes into us His breath of life. Though we are weak, He gives us strength. Though we are lost, He leads us in the paths of righteousness. Though we are sad, in His presence are joys forevermore. The God of creation, Elohim, is also the God who is near, Yahweh. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look back to the story of creation and we think of all of your mighty acts at that time, um, we sometimes don't see how this fits into what we're going through in our daily struggles. And I pray that today that you as the creator and sustainer of life, the, the, the gardener and the potter of grace, would be made real to us in our situations and our lives to know that just as you provided for Adam and Eve, not only in the garden, but after the fall, that you also provide the hope of the resurrection, that in the seed of the woman, the one promise to come to crush the head of the serpent, would we find hope and eternal life. And so I pray that not only in the hope of eternal life, but also in the life that we live now, that we will know that you are not only a God far off, the God who is holy, holy, holy and rules over all things, but we will know also that you are Elohim or Yahweh, the God who is near, the God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The God who says, though you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Though you walk through the fires, you will not be burned. May we know your nearness today for whatever we're going through. I pray that you would strengthen, that you would sustain us, that we might be those vessels from which the waters, the living waters, water of life might flow from us so that others might see and taste of that water and taste and see that indeed you are good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.